went into work, got the call at work, and I remember the doctor asked me if there was someone who cared for me nearby and if I was sitting down. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Today on Badass, we are speaking with Dana Malin. Dana is the Director of Engagement for the Minnesota Chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Prior to that, Dana worked for the American Cancer Society in Austin, Texas. Dana is happily married to her husband, Christian, and they have two children together, Frankie, who is seven, and Victor, who is 10. Dana has joined us on Badass today to share the story of her son, Victor's cancer diagnosis at age five. Today, we explore her family's sudden entrance into the world of childhood cancer, which involved painful and sometimes traumatic treatments for Victor, as well as a window into the struggle of other families who were losing children to cancer. Dana found herself navigating this while working full-time and with another child who was just a year old when Victor was diagnosed. Thankfully, Victor survived childhood leukemia and is doing well today. Dana, welcome to Badass. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks, Mirabai. So I wanted to begin our story today with the period of time when you first began to realize that something wasn't right with Victor, that something was going on. Sure. Um, It was very subtle. I was changing his shirt. He was five. So little kid helping him change outfits. And he had um, a nodule on his collarbone. And I'm going to pause here and acknowledge that for people listening, this might sound very scary this diagnosis story, kids do have lumps and bumps a lot, and it's almost always nothing. So I I feel a duty to just contextualize um, the story. Um, But it was in a it was in a funny place. And it was very hard, like a BB. And I work at the American Cancer Society. I know a lot about warning signs of cancer. My father actually um, died from multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer that can cause those kind of hard lymph nodes. And so I noticed it and immediately just had a lot of fear. And at the same time was sort of running a parallel in my head was, was the thinking that, of course, this is making you anxious because of your experience and, and your knowledge. And this is a false alarm. But huh. Friday, it was a Friday and I, I thought, I am going to be a mess all weekend and I'm going to be really fixated on this if I don't get it looked at. So we, we actually, as soon as I saw it, I told Christian, before I meet you guys out for dinner, I'm just going to run by urgent care and get this looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, Took him to urgent care the entire time with the mindset that the doctor would tell me it was nothing and we would be on our way. And at urgent care, that's exactly what happened. And in retrospect, we had a really bad experience with wow. the, the doctor there. He didn't do an abdominal exam. He acknowledged that Victor was really skinny, which he was, but didn't see that as a symptom, which it was. 
didn't notice Victor's color was off and really barely stayed in the room, said this kid has no temperature, no other symptoms. Little kids get all sorts of weird bumps and lumps all the time. If it's still there in a month, come and see me, but really treated me as though I was making an absolute mountain out of a molehill and, and was like a very foolish helicopter mother, right? Wow. And Which you is- had this, you had both lived experience of having cared for a family member with cancer and actually, you know, seen it with your eyes. Then also having that professional experience of talking to people about the warning signs of cancer and being really well educated in it. Right. And it was cancer. It was 100% an emergency. And I think this is interesting. And I know you've been through a lot of medicalized experiences as well. I was so happy to be told that I was that sort of stereotypical dumb mom because Mm -hmm. that was the best case scenario for my kid and for me. Yeah. And I probably had also internalized, you know, some inferiority on my part, right? That Mm -hmm. I'm not the expert. This is the expert. I did not notice how rushed and incomplete the exam was. And I didn't really show up in that moment as fully present as maybe I could have been um, as, as, and as I learned, I would need to do, right? I, yes. I learned very quickly that you couldn't just go to the doctor, sit back and relax and let them run the show. Yeah, yeah. but when you're feeling so vulnerable, you you really do want somebody to be the expert, somebody who is not you. Yes. You, know, you want somebody yeah. to take care of you and tell you what's going on and yeah. how frustrating that you know you quickly realized that you couldn't just be taken care of. Right. We went to dinner. We had a great weekend. It didn't go away. Um, His energy levels were normal. He did not have a temperature. He seemed to be eating fine. But after like four or five days and it was still there, I said, let's get him into our regular pediatrician. I just feel uncomfortable. I'm just really uncomfortable with this. Mm -hmm. And um, she was a thorough diagnostician. Again, not all doctors are great diagnosticians. Some are, some aren't. She was very thorough. In my opinion, she saved his life. She knew it was serious. Very quickly um, asked Christian to take him to get blood drawn that day. She did not want to wait even one more day. It was later in the day, so we had to hurry to a a lab to get that done. I remember that being kind of scary and stressful. And by 10 a.m. the next morning, we had the call that it was leukemia and that we needed to bring him in to the hospital to be um, begin treatment. So we were really fortunate to have a great pediatrician and to have also kind of have that background knowledge of cancer and cancer symptoms that kind of stayed with me and, and pushed me to persist but that was that was our diagnosis experience. We kind of it, it all happened very quickly from that. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, there must have been a feeling of just being thrown into this whole new universe, you know, in that moment where you discovered that your son truly did have cancer. It was somatic. I remember I got the call at work. I went into work that morning again thinking, oh, it'll be mono. I was very frightened, but I was still kind of telling myself that this would be over very shortly and was going to be a scare, not really an event, right? Mm-hmm. And and so went into the went into work, 
got the call at work and I remember the doctor asked me if there was someone who cared for me nearby and if I was sitting down. And yes, it felt a couple of the metaphors we've used over the years. It felt like we were on a train that was already pulling out of the station. Like it just, we were just, it was all already happening before we even understood. And somatically, and I don't know if this is something you experienced in, in your in your own kind of challenges, it was a full somatic body experience. And the the first two or three days after diagnosis, when I would get up to walk across the room, it felt like I was on a boat. Mm -hmm. I would, I actually felt the ground under my feet felt like it was moving and shifting and not stable. Yeah. And I remember noticing that and understanding that like, the amount of processing and the amount of stress that my body and my brain was under was so great that like even just my actual sort of sense of my body and space wasn't something I could completely rely on or that was being impacted. Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's that self-protective, you know, system that we have our, you know, our nervous system our autonomic nervous system that will shift us into places in which we are more disconnected from our bodies because the amount of stress in our body is so overwhelming. And yeah, I definitely had times, particularly when my ex-husband suddenly became psychotic, where I felt that shift as well. Yeah. And, And if you don't have good support around you or either that background and that expertise to understand what's happening, and or really good people around you to support you through those periods. I, I don't, you know, when I think about, or, or when people ask me, how did you get through that? You know, the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't, maybe because of, at that, even at that autonomic level, I was not fully functioning. But I do think that I had some background, both, you know, through um, education, previous therapy, conversations with friends to contextualize a little bit what I was experiencing. And then we had just a wonderful community of family and friends who rushed in. Mm -hmm. And so I could be at that sort of um, uh, very surreal, semi-functioning place and, and, um, and be held up to kind of, and bridged through that, you know, while I, well, I guess I got my my sea legs, so to speak, to figure out, you know, how we were going to proceed into the new normal. So it sounds like everything happened so fast. And I would imagine that treatment must have started really quickly as well. The next day. Yeah, we were admitted um, and more blood was drawn to do further diagnostic testing. They knew it was leukemia right away but they did not know, you know, which type. And then they also needed to understand the extent of the spread because the treatment protocols vary, right? Depending Mm -hmm. on all of those factors. But all of that was done the day we were admitted. I got that call about 10 a.m. We were in the hospital admitted by 2 p.m. And then the next morning, again, before 10 a.m., I think we had the treatment plan and they were already administering steroids and then chemo. And then that second day, he had a, he was sent down to surgery to have a port implanted. And as soon as the port was in, and that's a medical device that goes into your 
wall of your chest for people who don't know. And there's tubing that can go down to the arteries in your heart so that you can have the chemo administered through the port into your body. The, the chemotherapy immediately begins to circulate through your whole bloodstream. It's pushed out by the heart and then it causes less damage because it's not going into the smaller veins and arteries in your arms or legs and it, it's more effective. Now, up to this point, Victor had been a really healthy kid, right? Yeah. So yes. I yes. imagine that all of this, having the port placed and I've all the blood tests, even all of the ways in which he was stuck by needles must have been totally overwhelming for his little five-year-old body. It was. Um, he saw that we were scared. And then I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because we were advised and if things had gone a little more smoothly, it would have been great advice, but we were advised to not explain the leukemia or too much about what was going on because they have child life specialists at the hospital whose, you know, professional specialty and, and training is in developmentally appropriate explanations of these things for kids. And that it's very hard for parents to do that without it, you know, being overwhelming or scary. But what happened was we had that um, very busy morning of people coming in and out. And they knew even the night before that he was going to go down for surgery and, and a port placement. So he hadn't eaten and he couldn't have breakfast. And then his surgery time started getting pushed back due to other needs. And again, um, I'll bring up just sort of a theme of lessons learned of not understanding my need to advocate for my child in that moment. And, and I was still definitely very much in a place of just following, the, you know, the, the script and following the plan as it was being described to me. So he, we got to noon and then we got to 2 p.m. and he hadn't eaten since about 6 or 7 p.m. the night before. Mm -hmm. Child Life kept coming in to try to talk to him and then getting pushed out because other doctors were coming in to, to do other things. And so it was two or three o'clock when Child Life came in and it, they had 10 minutes before the surgery to try to like break the news and explain it. And he was just already very, very overwhelmed, freaked out, struggling. I think, I think really genuinely just even being hungry. He hadn't experienced that before. Yeah. Um, and he had a, a really bad reaction to the explanation about the surgery and the port and what was going to happen next and began to, to sort of have a, a panic attack. Oh. Um, and the nurses pulled me out in the hall and said, we have to get him down for surgery now. You got to go now and asked if they could push Ativan to help calm him. And I said, yes. And I, uh, what they meant was a nasal spray. So they, you know, and I, I have this criticism of the nurses, but I appreciate that they have saved his life. But this experience was just abysmal. They went in the room, they jumped on the bed, they pinned him down and they um, administered the Ativan uh, as a nasal spray. So I did not understand that he was going to be manhandled like that. Uh -huh. And that put him in an even greater panic. And then he had a paradoxical reaction to the Ativan and that put him into a full blown panic attack. He's never had one like that before or, you know, since absolute hysteria um, had to be restrained in the hospital bed from the unit we were in 
across the hospital, down the elevator into surgery. He was, he was in a full, full blown, you know, absolute panic attack. And he was really small. He was five. So it was, I was heartbreaking and we had to sign all the consent forms while that was happening. I remember, I mean, certainly I was crying. His father was crying. The nurses were crying. The oncologist was crying. He had to be like physically peeled off of me and carried back for the surgery. Profoundly traumatic experience for all of us. And then the doctors were very insistent that the anesthesia would kind of wipe that from his mind and um, he would wake up and not remember any of it. And it would be a bad memory for us, but not for him. That's not what happened. He ended up with the diagnosis of PTSD from that medical intervention that made treatment from that point forward very difficult. And then his initial relationship to his care provider and his care team, whose job it was to save his life, is that they were dangerous people who could hurt him. And um, to this day, he is still, he, he's such a great kid, Mirabai, but to this day, he definitely has a side eye. And when we talk about nurses, it's with a lot of complexity for a now 10-year-old of that they're good, but, you know, at any moment that can change. And so again, I don't know if that resonates with you. And, and most people hopefully go through their life not necessarily experiencing too dramatically the, that control dynamic that happens with the care team and that, that power piece. But I imagine that, again, you know, in your own lived experience, that that's, that's a theme that resonates. Yes. Yes. I can only imagine, you know, how deeply he must feel that. Because I know even, you know, as an adult with all my fully developed capacity to reason and understand things, I still feel very mistrustful in medical environments. That's something I've got to battle. And I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be so little and, yeah. you know, and, and to never have had an experience even close to that, right? Um, right. Right. And then to, right. you know, to have that happen. And I'm just thinking about you too. I mean, we have such an overwhelming instinct to protect our children. And how confusing and horrifying to know that the thing that has to be done to save his life is also incredibly traumatic. That is, that is also hurting him. That must have just been such a hard tightrope to walk for you. I, yeah, I think that's that's just it. It did feel like a tightrope because also it's not like you can get get up the next morning and be like, we're done with these people. I I remember being really acutely aware of that things were not going well, that this first surgical send-off was a, a catastrophe and that understandably, I remember thinking, I understand why they're minimizing it because how could you walk into work every day as an oncology nurse, a pediatric oncology nurse or, or a pediatric oncologist and be faced with the amount of trauma and suffering that you see and not compartmentalize and minimize that. You know, that they're fighting for these kids' lives and, um, and yet, my job as his mom is to be his advocate and to create safety for him 
in this space with this team of people that we're going to, it was a three-year treatment plan. So we were going to be in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that tightrope of advocating for your child and advocating for, for your concerns and your point of view, but also creating space and, and genuinely honoring their expertise, but a little bit also manipulating their buy-in and, and trying to look for what is the approach or what is the, um, the strategy here to um, work together as a team, but, but to my standards and, and, you know, how do I lead this group when I'm, I'm definitely not the expert, but my goals that's, for my kids are, are different than their goals. Yeah. Me. That's like, really interesting. It's almost like you had to become savvy in psychology to navigate bit. all of this. <laughs> um, a little bit, a little bit. It was hard. I got better at it over time. I think it's, it was hard one. It took weeks of me navigating um, between the oncology center and uh, I had to advocate really hard for therapy for him. That There was a real resistance to that because of his age and the perception that it would get better. His fear of needles and having his port touched after that was really, really acute. And I knew the level of distress and the amount of kind of tantrums and panic and resistance that he was showing was really very abnormal for an, a child who's very mellow. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know Victor before and they didn't know me before. And so there was, there was a month, I would say a month to six weeks where I would at every appointment, we had the multiple appointments a week raise the need for, you know, psych support for him. And they would suggest to give him more time to adjust or more time to process and, and more strategies, you know, trying different strategies to make appointments better. Every appointment was a fight. Every appointment, you know, was a lot of fear and, um, uh, and just really, I felt like we were stacking one negative experience on top of the next. And then we got in and he was seeing the psychologist who's on a different floor through a different part of the building. And he would go spend time with her and she was seeing a completely different child. You know, he, he was very uh, cheerful and um, articulate and had questions about his leukemia and wanted to talk about it with her and was able to describe his fears and his stress, but in a pretty level way. And then I think as a care team, they were getting together and the conclusion they were beginning to reach is this mom is extra. And maybe this child is a little spoiled because wow. they were seeing such different personalities. And then I was the one who asked the psychologist to come with us and see an appointment. And that was when things shifted. So when our psychologist saw him in the clinic, I remember after it was over, she looked at me and she says, I understand. I see it now. And that was a big moment. And then she went over to the hospital when I asked her, I asked her to do that next to talk to child life there who had seen him when he went off to surgery. And when she went to the hospital, it, again, we're talking about six, eight, maybe 10 weeks later now, um, they remembered that day that she didn't even have to begin to describe it. She just said there was a, a 
child here admitted for leukemia, the, surgic, the surgical send-off went poorly, and she said that the child life specialist who had been there started to cry, and she said, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly <sighs> who that is. Um, right. So even in and, the midst of all of these really traumatic experiences that these people witness all the time in this hospital, Victor's send-off stood out. It stood out. And it had it had weighed on that that person. And so it, it gives me a tremendous like empathy that you have this person who again is walking to the hospital every day for their job to provide comfort and structure and joy and uh, support to kids going through really difficult things and that you know that that person needed to process and probably needed some therapy and some help it, it makes me you know it made my heart hurt for her too to realize that she had been carrying that weight around mm -hmm. and that for whatever reason there was no structure between the hospital and the outpatient clinic between all these very well-intentioned professionals to share the information to get the full picture to you know then create a support and an intervention plan for victor mm -hmm. um, to prevent more trauma yeah 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 and i did have to be a little extra so to speak to, to bring all that you know to bring that together it really is a confront in terms of our cultural training as people who were born you know in bodies that were recognized as female you know, to to navigate these systems. I mean, it sounds like you had to ask dozens of times for these needs to be met. And that doesn't always come naturally to us when we've had so much cultural training to be nice. Yes, to be nice, um, to ingratiate yourself, um, and to trust the expert. Absolutely. And then I'll say I'm white. So and I'm, I'm very fortunate to be, you know, educated, to have a, a professional job where I've had a lot of leadership training, where I've had a lot of opportunities to work with doctors to to understand the medical system. So I was even with the challenges that we were facing, which were terrible, very privileged and very lucky to have a lot of context and a lot of understanding that set me up to to be successful in navigating that and even then it took a ridiculous amount of persistence and um you know i think that that the you know i tried asking nicely i tried asking firmly and finally really really got to a point where i raised my voice and that was what got us the first psychology appointment was um i i got really sharp with the nurse practitioner um and said that i i wasn't i was done asking and that they needed to make this happen for me mm -hmm. yeah so now you were kind of months in and victor was finally getting some help uh, just with with his anxiety around all of this stuff that was happening what were what were the doctors saying about victor's prognosis at that time when he had already been in treatment for like six months six months we um we knew that his prognosis with the the standard treatment protocol that was available was quite good 
that childhood leukemia, particularly, you know, standard B-cell leukemia has a very high cure rate and that, that they were, you know, they had a playbook. It was not a situation where we needed to make difficult decisions about what protocol to follow or what treatment center to go with. The risk then during that period of time is that um, when your immune system is knocked flat, as, as his was, any infection, no matter how mild, can kill you. And so the, while the prognosis was good, assuming that we could followed the treatment protocol, and we were in that lucky majority that did not relapse. The prognosis was quite good, but the unknown was, you know, how getting through that two and a half years of treatment, would we be able to avoid infections or, or other illnesses that could be life-threatening for, for Victor? And I'll say, too, once you've drawn the short straw, at least in my experience, statistics become a lot less comforting. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you had told me, you know, the odds were astronomically low that this would ever happen to him. And so once you, once you've beaten the odds in that way, so to speak, it's awful to try to rely on, well, 80% of the time or 70% of the time, this is how this goes. It's mm-hmm. hard to have faith that you you won't be unlucky again. Yeah, you've already had the rug pulled out from under you from once. Under you. So yeah. why won't it happen again? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then I'm just thinking about, you know, you and your husband, Christian, and, you know, you, you had a, another child as well, right? Who was quite young at this time. Cause if Victor was five, then Frankie would have been just little bitty, right? He was a year old. He was not quite two. He turned two, I think two months after Victor was diagnosed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So you two are both working full-time and have another very small child at home and trying to juggle i I would imagine that these appointments for victor were multiple multiple times every week yep yes the the appointments were constant we both needed to keep working for both insurance coverage and just financial reasons and then we lost childcare. Frankie couldn't go to daycare anymore. Certainly Victor couldn't, um, but also Frankie needed to be home because of the risk of bringing home uh, any kind of cold or flu or germs. So it, it was just, you know, in the moment when it, it all kind of hit us, it seemed, it was a catastrophe and it seemed almost uh, an impossible catastrophe. We were really frightened and didn't know what we, we were just overwhelmed. It, it seemed impossible. We're really lucky. And again, I'll, I'll come back to this over and over again. When I, I think about getting through that time, um, my community was so supportive and, and I had done a lot of work, personal work and um, relationship work to become a good friend, to know how to be a good friend, and then to connect with great people. I feel really fortunate that that friendship is something that I have had given to me and that I've been able to reciprocate all through my life. And I I would say one of my lessons for anybody listening is that you really want to build that friend group and think about your relationships 
and look for those relationships that are truly deeply reciprocal and have those in place, you know, before an event like this. I know um, a lot of parents that I talk to who are in that childhood cancer community, a lot of what I hear from other, other moms is that when something that scary and that difficult happens, there's a percentage of the population, a percentage of friends that will flee, that it feels so personal. It's mm-hmm. not, but that, you know, I heard many stories of people's churches, of their families, of their friends, just ghosting because they, they couldn't handle the real pain and the, the real fear that everyone felt for Victor, that everyone felt for us in that moment our friends really came and rushed in. We, we felt people pull in very close to us right out of the gate. My work, I was able to go part-time, I think for six months. And then at the end of that six months, Christian went down to part-time for six months. So the first year, financially, that was difficult, but we were able then to cover appointments. We had a lot of friends would come and hang out and play with Frankie there was a big impact to Frankie. I mean, he really did. I look back and, and I remember telling myself like that he was so little, he wouldn't remember it and it wouldn't, he'd be fine. I, I couldn't really extend my focus to the impact to him as much as I should have. I, I think similar to the oncologist at, at the hospital, it was, it was too much. Um, right. So we and really we couldn't made, change the circumstances and we couldn't change the circumstances. And so we, we still to this day, I think really talk about cancer and Victor's experience a lot as a family. And, and I, I would say that's one of my sort of regrets or one of the, the places I want to acknowledge is that we made sure Frankie had a lot of friends and play dates. You know, we, we snuggled him and cuddled him and, um, read to him and, and all of those things. But at the same time, that that whole first year especially, I was so focused on Victor and Victor's care. That was something we've had to make up to Frankie is, you know, we won't get that time back with him. But it's, I think it's just one of those, I guess I would say really unfortunate co-occurrences is, is the impact of the siblings and, and the fact that they do, um, they do end up taking, you know, second priority when you're going through a diagnosis like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I've found that there really is this um, both and truth here is that, you know, when you're going through, when anyone in your family, yourself, your children, your spouse, anyone's going through a really catastrophic illness, a, a life-changing, transformative illness that, you know, there will be places where you drop the ball and we feel so badly about it when it's with our children. Um, So it, so it's true. Like it's true that we've dropped the ball and it's also true that we probably were doing the very best that we could. Right. Um, Right. Because it's impossible to do that situation perfectly, you know, to meet all the needs. Like there's no way to meet all the needs in a situation like that. Right. Yeah. And, and again, it was looking for, for support for the baby and realizing that, that the, that I was not going to be the primary support. 
Mm -hmm. um, because I was often inpatient in the hospital with Victor or at the clinic with Victor or taking Victor to therapy appointments. And so really making what I've preferred to be Frankie's primary support, yes. But realistically, um, it, it really did fall to a very close-knit group of friends, all of whom we are still really close to and who I really just feel you know, a, a level of gratitude and, and love for that's beyond words. So how did Victor feel? I mean, three years is a really long time. Yes. How, how did Victor feel like, you know, as he got into, into past the first year, into the second yeah. year? Like, what was that like second for him? Year. He wanted to go back to school. That was a big goal of his. Um, he he had a, a big focus on that. And he, he was pulled out um, in pre-K and went back midway through kinder. So I remember that being a little bit of a thorn in his side and a, a topic of conversation is when will I get to go back to school? He had periods where he felt really sick and he was, you know, not lively. He was, he, he was just really sleeping very low. He had periods where he felt almost normal and was running around and there were periods and, and parts of the protocol where the chemo was was pretty light and we were even able to go for like weekend trips, you know, around Austin. And um, those were great times. Those, those were really precious to us. I remember one night he had had, we'd gone in in the morning, he'd had an allergic reaction to an infusion. They'd had to slow the infusion down to a very slow rate. It was supposed to take two to four hours and we were there so long that the clinic closed, they had to send us to the hospital to finish. And he had a, a second allergic reaction at the hospital and it was, they gave him a lot of Benadryl and he fell asleep. Um, and then they were finally able to finish the drip and we were walking to the car after all of that, it was 10 or 11 at night. And he took my hand and said, it's scary when it hurts so much, but it's nice that they helped me fall asleep. And it was just one of the few times that he really gave a window into his, his own understanding and his own making sense of the experience and that he looked for the, the light in there and that he, you know, that it was scary, but you know, his experience of the Benadryl was that they were doing that for him to just help him skip out on, on, you know, the reaction and that he saw that as a, as a positive. And mm -hmm. I remember being really emotional about that, that that was, you know, hard to hear your kids say something like that. Oh, um, yes. Yes. Yeah. And so but, moving that <laughs> even in the midst of all of this, that he's finding gratitude. Yes. Yeah. He, he, um, he really is a confident, cheerful, mellow kid. At, you know, we, I, and I think he just came that way. I, I take no credit, but he was always trying to get back to baseline. And now today, he's very proud of being a cancer survivor. So I'm curious about, you know, you, you, you get through all of it, you get to the end of the three years and what happens after you know, the treatment plan is complete. 
Sure. Um, we threw a big party. One of the better pieces of advice I got going in was you have to have things to look forward to. And it can be really scary when you're going through trauma. And again, and I, I'm sure this resonates with you to look forward to the future. It feels like you could be setting yourself up for real heartbreak to, you know, play the tape forward and imagine a good outcome. But it was great advice. You know, attention is really powerful and finding places to put our attention that weren't the moments that we were living through and the, the extreme fear and stress of the present moment was was really good for us. And so we would talk about the end of treatment party and oh my gosh, you know, he's five, he's six, he's seven. So his ideas were so great. He wanted to have a helicopter fly over and drop candy on all the kids. He thought everyone should get McDonald's pancakes because <laughs> that was like one of his favorite, favorite things to eat when he That's was on steroids. Hilarious. He was super hungry. Oh my um, He wanted a petting zoo. He wanted music. He wanted um, bubble machines. I mean, he really, really talked up this end of treatment party. Um, and we would, we, I would pull out my phone and we kept running lists of notes of all the things that we could do you know, and we threw a huge party. Um, my friend, my wonderful friend, Allie helped us plan it. And she just took that on as her, her kind of life's work for that, that era. And we had a huge, huge party. Um, we did not have a helicopter dropping candy, but I had a couple friends who rented animal costumes, like mascot costumes and like had baskets full of candy and they came out and through candy to all the children. I mean, it was just, it, and it was all of those families and all of those friends who had gotten us through. And so yeah. again, it just felt like a wonderful thing to get to celebrate with them and get to really love on their kids and, um, you know, create this huge shared memory. Um, yes. It's like, it's like you could share in the fear and the trauma, the, that collective experience as a community, all the people who are helping take yep. care of you guys, but then you also got to celebrate together. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and so that was great. And I think that's also become something I've learned through this experience is don't be afraid to celebrate. If you have anything worth celebrating, those little wins, those big wins, you know, just lean into that because, um, it, you know, it fills your cup. It feels so good. Um, and the future will be what it will be. You know, there's, there's no harm in celebrating in the moment. Well, how is Victor doing today? He is so good. He's got baseball tonight. Um, baseball, he, he had wanted to play ball the whole time he was in treatment and he had that medical device in his chest. He couldn't play. So he's playing baseball tonight, which is a triumph. He's almost done with fourth grade. Um, he's great. He has a, a solid community of friends, many of whom were his friends all through treatment, um, who were with him through that whole experience. Um, and he's really looking forward to summer. I love that. I love all of that. <laughs> yes. No. It's it's a miracle. It, it really is, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, his diagnosis was a death sentence. So it is an absolute triumph of Western medicine that he's treated and he's here with us. And again, you know, my 
criticisms of, of the trauma of the diagnosis, the trauma of the, the surgical send off and, and the way in which, you know, we have to navigate the medical system are all completely valid and opportunities for improvement, I think, in, in care. But at the end of the day, what a wonderful thing to have a cure for childhood leukemia. Yeah, I feel incredibly fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh, Dana, it was so good to talk with you. And thank you for sharing your story. I, I have a feeling that there's going to be a listener out there who is coping with trying to navigate an illness with one of their children that's going to hear this and really feel seen and connected. I hope so. I hope so. And I hope if if folks are listening who are those friends and that family who show up, just know what a gift that is and how important you are. And it's, you know, every day when I get out of bed and, uh, you know, there's a feeling of gratitude that really grounds me. And it's, those friends and, and those people that, that really woke that up in me. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to good friends. Thank you. And you are a badass. <laughs> Thank you, Mirabai. So are you. So are you. <laughs> All right. Hello, badass listeners. In today's installment of Fireside Chats with Mirabai, I wanted to hone in on one of the topics that's been coming up several times in this season, a thread that's run through some of our interviews about sexism in medicine. Now, I am not trying to lambast all practitioners of Western medicine. In fact, some of my favorite people on the planet are doctors, nurse practitioners, and nurses. I know that many practitioners do a great job of taking care of people. However, we do have a pervasive sexism problem in Western medicine, and it harms women. It harms women in so many ways, and it's particularly damaging to women of color who are most likely to die due to misdiagnosis and neglect. Since I have already spent some time reflecting on this phenomenon in my soon-to-be-published memoir, Holding Hope, I thought I would share with our badass listeners what I wrote in the book. So here is your sneak peek into Holding Hope, One Family's Odyssey Through Lyme Disease and Psychosis. I thought about all of those months when I was adrift in a healthcare system where no one would validate my experience of a crippling illness, where to a person they all intimated it had something to do with how anxious I was, as if anxiety is not a totally rational response to your body failing you at age 38, out of the blue, and with no diagnosed cause. Then there was the conversion disorder diagnosis, a disorder rooted in Freud's concept of hysteria, a disorder that Freud was turned on to by Charcot, who blamed women's uteruses for causing wide-ranging medical problems. In a 2017 article titled The History of Hysteria, published in the McGill University's Office for Science and Society's Weekly Digest, Ada McVean writes, In essence, 
Freud believed that women experienced hysteria because they were unable to reconcile the loss of their metaphoric penis. With this in mind, Freud described hysteria as characteristically feminine and recommended basically what every other man treating hysteria had through the years, get married and have sex. Previously, this was done to allow for the ridding of sexual liquids, whereas now the idea was that a woman could regain her lost penis by marrying one and potentially giving birth to one, end quote. Later research has determined that the majority of the unexplained medical problems women described that led them to be diagnosed with hysteria can now be explained by diseases that were yet to be discovered at the time Freud was conducting his research. I thought about Freud's hysteria, about how women have been disregarded and abused in our healthcare system since its inception. I began reading articles about how women weren't even included in most of the major research the medical establishment used to create its fundamental understanding of the human body and all of the disease processes. I read about women experiencing heart attacks and being misdiagnosed as having anxiety and sent home to die. I thought about the many female clients I had cared for who had disclosed similar stories of being dismissed and misdiagnosed. One of my clients shared that at age 39, she had begun to experience hot flashes, mood swings, and anxiety after a year in which her menstrual periods were quite irregular. She had seen her mother and aunts go through menopause, and she recognized her own symptoms as such. She went to her male OBGYN with the question, am I in early menopause? Her doctor dismissed the idea of menopause immediately, but told her he did think she may have a mental health issue and referred her to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist met with her briefly and then prescribed a benzodiazepine, clonopin, prescribed as a daily medication. The medication sedated her to the point she was unable to perform her tasks at her job and was placed on a medical leave. In response to her complaints about how sedating the drug was, the psychiatrist placed her on a second drug, an SSRI, Wellbutrin, which she reacted poorly to, becoming even more disoriented and dysregulated. This client had always believed in following medical advice. She felt as if she should take the medication exactly as it was prescribed. Therefore, she kept taking both medications each day, despite how they made her feel. She tried to go back to work, and she was fired. In the meantime, a precancerous cyst and three nodules were discovered in her breast, and she had to have surgery to remove them. She was fired just weeks before the surgery and lost her health insurance. Delaying the surgery meant risking cancer, so she had the surgery while uninsured. After six months on the medication, my client, who had no history of bipolar disorder, had a manic episode and went on a spending spree across three states. In the immediate wake of this uncharacteristic behavior, she took herself off the medication and realized the devastation these meds had caused. She ended up having to file for bankruptcy due to the surgery and the spending during the manic episode. Off the meds, she was stable, able to get another job. She resumed her life. 
She also discovered after getting off the meds, she had, in fact, gone into early menopause. It took her years to rebuild financially from the damage done to her by that OBGYN's misdiagnosis. Another client told me, in her early 20s, she began having significant joint pain and fatigue. She chalked it up to exercising too hard or overextending herself at work. After her first child was born, her symptoms worsened. She said just picking up her baby and doing household chores caused her excruciating joint pain. She went to a doctor who told her she was just stressed and to try to get some more rest. It didn't feel right, but she was a young mother who had many other things to think about, so she accepted it and tried to manage her pain with supplements and diet changes. The pain and fatigue plagued her for another five years. Through the birth of her second child and her experience as a working mom, she had to struggle with these symptoms. While in my care, she decided to look into her health concerns again because it didn't make sense to be feeling how she did at age 31. I recommended a doctor whom I knew to be thorough and who listened to the wisdom of her patients. My client was diagnosed with lupus. She had lived with a painful health condition through some very important years in the lives of her children even after she sought help. Lupus is a treatable autoimmune disease, but without a diagnosis, no treatment was available to her. I felt angry on her behalf as we talked through her feelings about being misdiagnosed and the impact it had on her life. In 1973, my own grandmother died from a misdiagnosed heart attack at age 46. She sought help multiple times over a period of two weeks as she was experiencing a series of milder heart attacks. She was diagnosed with a culmination of viruses and sent home where she had a final fatal heart attack. In the 1970s, most of the research on cardiac arrest had been conducted on men. The medical establishment's discounting of the female experience of cardiac arrest led her doctors to miss what was happening until it was too late. My mom was only 19 when she lost her mother, my aunt just 16. How many women have lost their lives due to sexism built into the foundation of Western medicine? How many have suffered unnecessarily with debilitating symptoms? How many have experienced financial setbacks because they were misdiagnosed? In sorting through my concerns about the treatment of women in the healthcare system, I wasn't discounting the role trauma plays in our health. For many of my clients, trauma work is an important piece of the puzzle in regaining physical well-being. Unresolved trauma undoubtedly creates stress in the body, which can be a factor in many illnesses. The ACEs study, which looked at the health outcomes of people who had adverse experiences in childhood, made a definitive connection between trauma and health, a connection many practitioners have observed for years. What occurred to me as I thought about my experience and the experience of so many of my female clients was it's not an either-or situation. The paradigm in Western medicine, you are either stressed or you are sick, isn't serving us. People who are experiencing physical health problems exacerbated by stress and trauma still deserve diagnosis and treatment. Symptoms should be managed. There should be some effort to help patients be well. 
In the case of my client with lupus, supportive mental health treatment as an adjunct to the treatment of her physical symptoms has given her greater relief. In her situation, when she received a both-and response, getting treatment for both trauma and her physical health issues, it gave her the support she needed to recover her well-being. Had it been just one or the other, she may have struggled unnecessarily. So those are my thoughts on sexism in Western medicine. I'm curious what your thoughts are. If you would like to comment on this or any other episode of Badass, you can go to our Facebook page, Badass Tales of Resilience, and leave a comment, or just like and follow us. And be on the lookout for my book, Holding Hope, coming out sometime this year. Thank you so much for listening to our show today. I'm Maribai Rose, and you've been listening to Badass Tales of Resilience. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band Rodeola for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the Badass Team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show. 